We have a sponsor today that uh, is not who I was expecting or planning on, but we've learned about a special opportunity, so I just wanted to let you know about it. I don't know if you're like me, but uh, as I'm getting a little bit older, uh, sometimes sleeping uh, through the night or sleeping a lot is not as easy for me as it used to be. And uh, there was even a a time, well, about a year where I was putting off, but I knew I needed to get a CPAP. Um, And then uh, we found a product uh, and a kind of a number of things that have made a huge difference for me, like a really, really big difference for me. So uh, some of them, like I had been taking melatonin, but I'd learned that that, uh, the, the melatonin that we take is it actually makes your body stop producing its own melatonin and then you uh you can't sleep as well after a while it, it kind of uh, wears that out but there's a product uh that helps your give your body what it needs to create its own melatonin that's been really effective for me uh there's some other things that help us have the kind of omega-3 fatty acids that help us sleep but the biggest thing for me has been a product called uh, nitro that helps your body ni- naturally produce nitroglycerin which includes improves and increases your blood flow, which is what's made it so I don't need a CPAP at all. Um, I, if I'm taking that, then I, I sleep. I don't snore. Uh, both my wife and I know if either one of us run out that uh, we're going to hear some snoring. But if, if not, uh, uh, we're going to sleep well. Uh, I've had times where if I, I was struggling because of different things, if I take that again during the night, it makes a difference. It's, uh, it's almost like a big fat Greek wedding Windex for me. Uh, because I've also found I have problems with canker sores and cold sores and things like that. But if I put this uh, nitro on it because it increases the blood flow in that area so we can get the healing going on quickly, it's taken what has been a miserable thing for me and made it so it's never a big deal. In fact, I have right now a teeny tiny canker sore that would at this point have been terrible for me. And it's no problem. It's not bothering me at all because I've been putting it on it. But the biggest thing for me is sleeping. So we've learned, uh, we want to say, I guess, besides Merry Christmas, Happy Boxing Day to our our friends around the world that celebrate that. And uh, on Boxing Day, 26th and 27th, there's a 30% off sale uh, on this stuff uh, and more. So uh, you can get these products by emailing your wellness coach, or sorry, your. you can get these products by emailing your mental wellness coach at gmail.com. That's how you can get these products. Again, big difference for me in my life. If you will email your mental wellness coach at gmail.com. Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about things that have made the scriptures real to us because we think we can draw more power out of them that way, and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Carrie Mulstein, and uh, this is our last uh, podcast of the year. It's hard to believe we've already finished another year of Come Follow Me, and uh, just so thrilled with the power that's coming to the saints from that, uh, it's my feeling that we're reading the scriptures like never before, and I, I just will remind our audience again, I like to remind you that hopefully uh, this uh, podcast and anything else you you do is propelling you into the scriptures. It's not a substitute for the scriptures, but it propels you into the scriptures and you read the scriptures themselves. I am excited for our guest today. Uh, we will have had him on already by now, uh, but uh, just to reintroduce you to uh, Nick Frederick. Uh, this is Nick, who uh, is the, in the same department as myself and uh, teaches ancient scripture. He focuses on the, the New Testament and uh, is one of the better teachers of the second half of the New Testament that I've been able to uh, uh, kind of observe teaching in our department. Uh, Nick did his studies at uh, Claremont Graduate uh, University. Uh, his wife is Julie. And uh, I don't know what else we should uh, what else should we know about you, Nick? So welcome, Nick, and tell us more about yourself. 
sure. I don't know how much, how much you want to know, but I grew up in Delta, Utah. I served a mission in Brussels, Belgium. I was an accounting major, believe it or not, for one semester oh. at Ricks College. And uh, I quickly turned away from that and I decided I might as well do something I love, which was study the scriptures. So I started taking classes on Greek and Hebrew and Latin and history courses. And I just I found my way to the religion department back in about 2007, taught my first class for you guys back then when you were associate chair and you came and watched me teach a few times and took me up to your office and and gave me some guidelines that I still remember that come in handy over the years. Ah, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. And <clears throat> actually, that's part of why I think it wasn't that time, but another time uh, that I came to observe you probably when you're going up for some uh, advancement or something or other. But I saw you teach the book of Revelation. I observed a few times and say, teach the book of Revelation. I thought, okay, there's a guy who knows how to teach the book of Revelation. So that's part of why I was hoping you'd come and talk to us about. Uh, we're right here at the tail end, the end of the book of Revelation, but that's the it got some of the most exciting stuff in it. So um, I'm always happy to talk about the book of Revelation. So, yeah. That's well, great. why don't we jump in and you can just uh, take us to any place you'd like to go and anything you'd like to talk about here in this last little bit of the book. Yeah, so with this reading block from chapters 14 to 22, we kind of move into the second act in the book of Revelation. The first act was kind of getting a sense for kind of, you know, God on one hand, we see God in his throne room. We're introduced to this figure of the lamb. Uh, we, we get a sense for those that follow the lamb, the 144,000 that are sealed. And then we see kind of what happens to those who resist the message of the lamb in chapters eight and nine. And we get kind of this moment of darkness when the, the witnesses are killed in chapter 11. Um, and kind of this first glimpse of Satan appears. But then the witnesses are resurrected, and chapter 11 ends on a high note. And then beginning in chapter 12, John seems to, to want to kind of reframe the story. And he takes the characters that were hanging out in the background, kind of the lamb, Satan, and he brings them center stage. In chapter 12, we see kind of Mary and the birth of the Savior. And we see Satan introduced as a dragon. Uh, then Mary or the woman, the church, however you want to interpret that figure in chapter 12, is taken into the wilderness, right? And the and the child, if you want to call that Jesus, is taken up to heaven. And in chapter 13, Satan assembles his forces. There's a beast who comes out of the land. There's a beast that comes out of the sea. And we kind of have this unholy trinity of sorts that is, at the moment, seems to have the upper hand when it comes to, to affairs on the earth. And beginning in chapter 14, we start to swing the focus back to the Savior, back to the um, to the Lamb and his followers. And we start to see, we, we see a song that they sing. We see the rise of the great and abominable church of some sort, this, this, this woman who rides on the back of a beast in 17. We see her fall. Then we see the Savior's second coming, and then the millennium, and then the celestialized earth. And so we essentially take it, you know, we cover thousands of years of history just in these closing chapters. But just like the first half, the first act ended on a happy note, so will the second act of the book of Revelation end on a, on a happy note. And so kind of for as much as we talk about this book being kind of full of darkness and despair, right, and violent imagery, I think that the point we don't want to miss is how much hope radiates out of so many of these verses. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say even, uh, well, he, in some ways, uh, John is trying to talk about the history of the earth, or at least the history of uh, following uh, God and having a, a relationship with him and, and letting God prevail in your life so that you prevail overall. Uh, in some ways, I think this can mirror 
just our lives. Uh, we're on this fallen world at a time when uh, fallen stuff happens, right? And and we're going to have periods of time where it feels like, wow, this is really tough. But uh, what we need to know is that this, this story has a good ending. Uh, yeah. And that can get us through the tough times if we remember the good ending. In fact, I remember when um, President Hinckley, way back in the days of President Hinckley, when he was interviewed for 60 Minutes and he was so upbeat. And uh, if I remember right, Mike Wallace asked uh, President Monson, how can he be so upbeat? And President Monson said, well, I think he knows how the story ends. And uh, <laughs> I, I, there's there's some comfort in that to know in the end, this may be tough, but in the end, this works out. Yeah, and that's one of the things I tell my students is I say, look, this is a complicated book, but you can summarize the book of Revelation in two words. Jesus wins, right? <laughs> that's the whole point. Chapter one, verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. What are you going to learn? What's going to be revealed about him? That he wins, right? And Satan may look like he's got power. Satan may look like he's legit. He may look like what he offers you is fun and interesting and appealing. But at the end of the day, it's the Savior that's going to win, so who's on the Lord's side, right? So the book of Revelation is saying to make a choice. Don't stand in the middle. Yeah, that's very, very good. And I think, um, <clears throat> I mean, I don't want to get too uh, esoteric or uh, difficult or whatever, but I also think, I mean, the, the book of Revelation, uh, and by now we, we've we talked about it uh, already, that uh, it has a lot of temple imagery. Yeah. Um, and I think that the temple is teaching us the same story. Uh, that uh, there's a, a time where, you know, we 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 were close to God, but we're we're uh, we lose that closeness, and then the question is, are we going to follow Satan or are we going to follow God? And it's going to be tough either way. Um, but the story ends well for those who follow God, and it's not going to end well for those who follow Satan, even though it seems like for a time Satan is the one who has uh, the upper hand. So. Uh, I think that that message is uh, taught to us uh, all over the place, but Revelation and Temple is a good place to to look for it. Absolutely. I mean, you have those beautiful chapters back in two and three, where you have these seven churches who were each promised, right, uh, yeah. to, to to partake of the hidden manna, to, to, to hold the iron rod, to sit on God's throne, right, to partake of the tree of life, to put on white garments. I mean, you just have these promises that are made, but the catch is always to them that overcome. Yeah. And so the question then becomes, well, what am I supposed to overcome? And it's like John is saying, well, I'm glad you asked. Here's a vision that will help you understand how to overcome the forces of Satan and how to find your way to the Savior, to the Lamb, right? And so sometimes we lose, I, I think the focus is exactly as you say, the vision is to help us find our way to the temple, right? It's not just a vision in and of itself. And I think you see that in chapter 21, when we actually see the Holy of Holies descend upon the earth, and become kind of this celestialized world with Heavenly Father and Jesus. And those that overcome are promised are promised all things, right? And the tree of life is literally right in front of you. I mean, yeah. we John gets us back to where we need to be, gets us back to the temple, a new heaven and a new earth, so to speak, come full circle. Uh, beautiful. Perfect. Well, good. Uh, any place that you'd like to focus on in particular as we jump into these chapters? I mean, 14 seems like a good place to start. Just because we've come off chapter 13, where we see the dragon and the two beasts, and perhaps we start to get a little bit worried that, because again, the lamb has been kind of hanging out in the background, and Satan's the one who's now, he's been cast down to earth in chapter 12, he's the one who's assembling his forces, and maybe we start to get a little bit concerned, well, where is the Lord, right, in all this? And so chapter 14, right, verse 1, I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion. 
and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. We have this theme through the book of Revelation that, you know, those who are sealed with God's name or seal, it's on their forehead. And it's the same for those who follow the beast, right? They have a mark as well. Almost like this idea that you can't hide your allegiance when it comes to God. Again, there's no middle ground. You're either with God or you're against him, right? So here we have the lamb with his 144,000. We see the voice come down from heaven. Uh, we see angels who now come down and beginning in verse six. We see three angels who are going to come down and uh, kind of pass judgment, okay, or at least give warning calls to those on the earth. Hey, this is serious, right? Here's the everlasting gospel. Okay, here's what you need to cling to. Here's what you need to find your way towards. And if you don't, right, then you get stuck with kind of the, the judgment that the third angel passes, right? And obviously these verses are important. Um, just kind of Latter-day Saints, we interpret this as Moroni's, or one interpretation, Moroni's right appearance to Joseph Smith. So we kind of have our own restoration reading of this. But then we have verse 14. I looked and beheld a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. So here we have the Lamb on one hand. A second kind of scene emerges where this one's the son of man, having uh, on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Uh, then you kind of have these two scenes of judgment, right? And I think this kind of summarizes where this reading block goes as we kind of separate the sheep from the goats, so to speak, right? As we kind of decide who's on the Lord's side, because this first angel in verse 15 is going to say, thrust in thy sickle and reap. And we're going to have, you know, a kind of a righteous reaping. The, the, the those who are found worthy are are judged righteous on one hand. Okay, they're reaped over here, and then a second angel comes in, right, and thrusts in their sickle. But this one is, um, this one is a, a judgment of the uh, the wicked. Verse nineteen: The angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden without the city, right? And so again, 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 John says there is no middle ground. The righteous, the lamb will find you. The wicked, you're going to be destroyed, right? And he's like, I don't know how many different ways I can say this, but here's yeah. here's a here's a twenty third way of saying the righteous are going to be lifted up and the wicked are going to be destroyed. And so the rest of our chapters are are going to see this judgment playing out. We're going to see the righteous lifted up and we're going to see the wicked destroyed. That's that's so good. And and maybe I can just uh, I guess uh, I don't think it's tangential, but uh, it's it's not what a lot of people talk about. But to me, this is important for understanding the book of Revelation and it's to understand judgment. So uh, those who've been listening to my podcast for a while will know, especially if you're with me for the Old Testament year, that that I think that in uh, at least in Hebrew and the way it's used in in uh, the Old Testament, the word judgment isn't just are you justice, figuring out who's good and bad. It, it's got this sense of making things right, making things the way they should be. And John or whoever's writing Revelation, it, it clearly is versed in the Old Testament. I think it's Old Testament based. Absolutely. And and I think he actually has a lot of parallels to Isaiah. I, I feel like uh, I, Revelation and Isaiah strike me very similarly. And, and I think that he's intentionally he often draws on Isaiah imagery. Um, and one of the things that I have to go over with my students again and again and again when we're teaching an Isaiah course is, OK, yes, judgment is about making things right. But so often in Isaiah, this comes down to, well, there is a group. And sometimes it's literally Babylon, um, and sometimes it's symbolically Babylon, whether it's Assyria or whoever else, um, 
that is oppressing the righteous or the covenant holders. And God typically will plead with those people to stop it and you know, do all sorts of things to get them to stop it. But if they do not stop, then judgment is, if you're going to make things right, you have to end the oppression of the innocent. And if the oppressors refuse to stop oppressing, then the the only way to end that oppression is to get rid of the oppressors. And uh, and so the judgment really is that that's how you make things the way they should be, is that there's no oppression. Everyone is uh, going to be taken care of that would allow themselves to be taken care of. And those who just refuse, then they have to be removed. And I see that same thing here in the book of Revelation, this idea that judgment is really, yes, it's deciding you followed God and you didn't. But there's an element of that, that, well, we really wanted you to follow God. You just wouldn't stop oppressing the saints. And so this is what we had to do because you wouldn't stop. And I, even as a parent, I've had to do that, right? Like, I don't want to punish this child. So I ask you, please quit hitting your brother. But if they don't quit hitting their brother, I got to do something, you know, to end this situation. And I, I feel like uh, we're seeing that same thing in the book of Revelation. Yeah, which I think is helpful to understand this in kind of a first century context, right? You have these Christians who, beginning somewhere in the second half of the first century, start to undergo a series of persecutions. And they're looking, saying, hey, we're doing the right thing, but Rome, right, however you yeah. want to personify Rome, Rome just won't leave us alone. And so they're, they're looking to the Lord for some kind of reassurance that they're, they're going to be vindicated. And so they find in the pages of the book of Revelation that vindication as this personification of Rome, this, this woman who rides on the back of a beast, right? Yeah. Um, it gets her comeuppance, so to speak, and those who... Those who have been slain for the cause find that vindication. You can see John really trying to kind of uh, tap into the the social context of the first century and find some way of giving kind of a hope in the yeah. midst of this oppression. Yeah, I think there's actually a strong parallel between the book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation and the same thing. Like, okay, I know things are tough, but you should know things are tougher if you choose to not follow God because it's tough right now. In the end, yeah. that's going to be worse for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, all right. Where where do you want to keep going? Sorry to Oh no 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 no, no side note there, but no, no, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, let's maybe go, let's talk about this this really uh curious figure in chapter 17, right? Okay. The this the, the harlot that rides on the back of this beast. I mean, earlier in chapter 12, we saw the figure of the woman introduced, right? The woman clothed with the sun who gives birth to this messianic figure. And we right. could talk about whether, is that Mary? Is that the Christian church? Is that the kind of the Jewish church? Okay, the, the, the covenant Israel or something like that. That's uh, probably all of the above. That's yeah, usually probably, the that's approach the I take. That's read the book of Revelation, right? It's, it's yeah. all of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Same thing with Isaiah. There really are a lot of similarities. So, yeah. yeah. And, yeah and, and that's one of the things I try to tell my students is the worst thing you can do is try to pin their book of Revelation down to one specific meaning. Yes. Right? It just doesn't. It's you got to leave yourself open to three or four or 17 different ways of reading it. Because John, that's how John is presenting it. Right. Yeah. And so, so chapter 17, we get this kind of foil for the woman clothed with the sun in chapter 12. And uh, verse... Verse 1, chapter 17. There came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Again, kind of piggybacking on what you said about the book of Revelation in the Old Testament, just this kind of image of sexual fidelity for religious faith. 
Yeah. Right? Israel, the imagery we use when Israel, like in the book of Hosea or something, when Israel kind of yields to idolatry is Israel has gone a whoring or something like that. Yeah. Un unfaithful to their covenant, like a, a husband or a wife is unfaithful to their marriage covenant. And so I, I, I think that's probably the best way to read this committed fornication in the sense that we're talking about kind of a, a an, an allegiance to a religious or pseudo-religious organization. I think another way you could say this is uh, if you've been made drunk with the wine of fornication, uh, you could say they have not let God prevail in their lives. Uh, the world has prevailed more than God in their lives. And, and that's in God's eyes. That's uh, spiritual fornication. Yeah, I think so. And I think we can understand this. Uh, I mean, we, we, it's great that we've just kind of jumped here, but uh, in verse or chapter 16, uh, it talks about gathering for this great battle, right? And so th this is oh, a continuation of that. Yep. Yep. This, okay. this is what happens because of the gathering of the battle. This is when God is going to decide what happens with the battle, as it were. So so let's just keep going. Yeah, well, so, no, then let's, let's back up a little bit to 16 because I... I, I I, John does something interesting here, and this is something we'll see him do a few times. Like he'll get us, he'll get us set up for something, and he'll get the anticipation up. So in chapter sixteen, verse sixteen, right, they gather to a place called Armageddon or Armageddon. Yeah. Which in and of itself, I mean, sure, it's it's a geographic location in the northern part of the Holy Land, but as with a lot of things in the Book of Revelation, it could have additional meanings. Right, Deborah wins a battle in Megiddo. Yeah. Uh, Josiah is killed at Megiddo, right? And so the Lord may just be saying, turning our attention to, to a place that not necessarily this is where it's going to happen, but just invoking an image of right. battle, right? That the, the, the his readers will be familiar with. But yeah, then and maybe we can even uh, expand on that just a little to say, I mean, Megiddo, the reason there are so many battles and there are, you know, I could list, I think I've listed at least 16 battles I know of that have been fought there, but there, we know there were more. Uh, so if you're going to try and invoke a place that's known for battle, Megiddo is a good place. But the reason it is so known for battles is because it controls a crossroads um, between continents. And and so I think there's something important uh, and symbolic about that as well that John probably is intending his informed audience to know that we there's something about controlling your spiritual crossroads that's important in in this story. So anyway, keep going. Well, that's good. And so, so he gets us, John gets us primed for this battle and then says, hold on, not yet. And he's going to do that a few times. He's a storyteller, yeah. right? Uh, he, he builds the drama and then he says, hold on, not yet, right? So he gets us ready for this battle between the dragon, Satan, and the lamb, Jesus, and then says, not yet. One more major player has to emerge in this drama, right? Which is then what pulls us into chapter 17 Good. with the of of the woman he says there's one more thing you have to understand and that's the role of and again lots of speculation lots of literature has been written as to the who this woman represents right it seems at least in john's context the the, the female personification of rome was roma right and so that john has the the city of rome and what it represents as kind of the the force that's oppressing the church and my guess is that's how your first century readers would have read it. Right. But in, in any kind of dispensation, right, you're going to have, you know, luxury and license and destruction and power are going to be motivating factors for lots of people. And it seems like John is saying kind of, again, identify in your dispensation who this figure is and then learn to recognize them for who they are. Don't get seduced. Don't get sucked in. 
Very good. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I would say, so, for example, the Book of Mormon, uh, Nephi's vision, uh, it has a lot of parallels with this. And so his version of this would be the Great and Abominable Church, which I know a lot of people want to say, okay, that's a specific religious organization. And we even had time periods where people were saying, well, this is the Catholics and so. But I read that as saying, no, this is anything that you're, well, again, we could go back. I've often said anything you're worshiping more than God, but we could go back to that phrase of that you're letting prevail in your life more than God. That becomes the great and abominable church. So I think Nephi's Nephi's use of this supports exactly what you're saying. It, it could, in some instances, it's a specific thing or force uh and in some ways it's whatever that force is for you yeah and the, the thing i love about nephi's vision again is it's it's very black and white right in in yeah. chapter 14 it's the yeah. church of the lamb and it's the great abominable church and there's no churches that kind of exist in between but we're not talking about a specific organization we're talking about again yeah those who belong to the church of the lamb and those who belong to the great abominable church and it could be lots of different congregations who belong to one and lots of different congregations yeah. belong to the other it's up to us to make sure that the name written on our forehead, right, is the right one. Yeah. In fact, I would guess that there will be members of our church who are in the Great and Abominable Church, and there are members of other churches who are in the Church of the Lamb. That that would just be how I'd read it. And I I would completely agree with you. I I think in these in chapter fourteen of First Nephi, those kind of congregational boundaries they dissolve. Yeah. Right. We, That's we stop exactly looking right. at each other as a Methodist or a Baptist or a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu, and it's again who's on the Lord's side versus. Who's not? And as as President Oaks said, right, any philosophy or organization that opposes belief in God, right, can can yeah. turn to the great and abominable church. And that seems to be what John is saying. In my dispensation, John is saying this role is being played by Rome. Yeah. Good. And so it it again, it's it's a it, it it's a bit of a disturbing image. I mean, this this woman she's kind of a, this debauched courtesan of sorts who kind of walking around in a drunken stupor and chapter 17 ends very violently with, with her death. And it's, it can be a disturbing chapter to read, but uh, John seems to be saying the stakes here are high, right? If, if you get, if, if you kind of decide that that's the direction you want to go, be aware of what's going to happen. If you follow the grain of honor church through its, through its conclusion. And again, uh, you see that, same imagery in the Book of Mormon, right? That they 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 feast on each other. They're uh, the anyway, yeah. The, it's a the fall is spectacular. Yeah, even though violent, it seemed like they were unbeatable, the fall is spectacular. That's one thing I love about the Book of Revelation or uh, Nephi's vision or Daniel or Ezekiel is this always seems like it's a, a comeback story. It's a come from behind Cinderella story, right? Like it seems like the bad guys are going to win, but in the end they don't. Yeah. And and the good guys come back and, and win. And so and you see that in chapter 18. I mean, chapter 18 is kind of a funeral dirge devoted to the passing of, of this woman, right, to her death. And we see all the people who mourn for her, right? We see the kings of the earth, right, who come out in chapter 9. And in chapter 11, the merchants come out and mourn what they've lost. I mean, again, all the things the world offers are represented by this by this woman and all the people have been seduced. But in the theme, John keeps coming back to this chapter is in one hour. Right. She was overthrown. It's power that has no long term basis, no long term stability. It might look great in the moment. But if you're looking at the big picture, there's nothing there to build a foundation upon. And uh, so we, we just we just watch her passing. 
right? That's so good. You know, it's it's fun to read these things uh, as we have uh, different prophets that have taught us, because this is my first time going through this since the talk by President uh, Nelson, the one where he talks about rest and where he says that the world teaches us that power, um, power, popularity, um, pleasures of the flesh and uh, possessions are what will give us happiness and peace and rest, but they can't. Um, and it, that seems to me exactly what the, the, the woman is representing and what the merchants and all the different groups are. It's all these, the, those same four categories, right? And, and, uh, everyone thinks this is going to give us rest and happiness, but they cannot do so is what president Nelson teaches us. Temporary fulfillment. You might have a great yeah. one hour with them. Yeah, that's right. In the long term, it just isn't going to get you where you need to be. Yeah, Absolutely. And so then we see that in, in chapter 19, right? Chapter 19, kind of for the first time, we've seen the lamb hanging out. We saw the son of man kind of filling this Daniel 7 role a little bit back in chapter 14. But it's chapter 19 where the Savior starts to emerge as the figure that we expect to see kind of as we get closer and closer to the second coming. So we go back to after this kind of uh, interlude, we return back to chapter 16 with the gathering of the forces at, at Mount Megiddo, right at Armageddon. And again, we have this image now of a woman, okay? But the woman in chapter 19, vastly different than the one in chapter 17. The woman in chapter 17, dressed in scarlet. Here's the description of the woman in chapter 19, right? In verse uh, verse 8, to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And in chapter 7, this is referred to as the wife of the lambs, we kind of have what, you know, the Old Testament, the marriage supper, right, of the lamb. But again, again, John does this, right? He sets up a wedding, and so we expect a wedding feast, because we're promised a feast, we're promised a supper, but we don't get it. We don't get it for actually a thousand years before we actually have this fulfillment, right? John is again saying, I'm going to kind of take your expectations of what's going to happen and twist them a little bit, because the supper we actually get right, is the the carnage and destruction at the second coming with this image of the beasts, right, eating the the flesh of those who have fallen to the Savior's forces. Uh, But we see here kind of Zion in contrast to Babylon, right, the woman in chapter 19 versus the woman in chapter 17. And um, a couple of things I really like here. Uh, The book of Revelation can sometimes feel like it's a little bit overly militant, like it's calling Christians to to fight or something like that. So you see Jesus's forces being gathered together at this moment. But when you read chapter 19 carefully, there's no fighting that actually happens. And the yeah. only the only weapon that emerges is the sword that comes out of Jesus's mouth, which represents the word of God. Right. And the idea here being that Satan and his forces are conquered, not because Jesus kills everybody. Not because Christians go out on a crusade against people that they think are members of, you know, the great and abominable church, but because Jesus's word goes out, right, and overcomes those forces. So good. Uh, and, and, and in those same terms, uh, I find it, there's, I think, a really strong parallel with Isaiah 63 here, where Isaiah talks about uh, the person who's coming in glory and power from the east comes in uh, he's tread the wine press alone and so that makes us think of first coming and and his garments are clothed in blood and so that makes us think okay well they they got the that blood from 
his suffering in Gethsemane, but then he talks about the blood being those who he's trampling down. Wow. Here, it's kind of a little bit the opposite. He's coming, uh, when it talks about him coming in verse 11 with on a white horse, and he's faithful and true, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and so on. But then verse 13, and his he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Well, that doesn't make it sound like it's the blood that he's of the people he's conquering. That sounds again like it's his own blood. And that's an interesting thing. The conquering happens not because he sheds others' blood. It's because he has shed his own blood. Now, if we combine that with Isaiah 63, I mean, there's some element of, well, then those who are refused to quit oppressing will, uh, th their blood will also be, be scattered. And that ties into me to section 19, where, you know, he suffered for you, so you don't have to suffer. But if you just won't take advantage of it, then you're going to have to suffer the way, same way he did, right? So blood's going to be spilled. If you will follow him, it's just his blood that's spilled. And I shouldn't say just because that's actually a pretty significant thing. But it means uh, when I say just, I mean, it doesn't have to be our our blood. And so I, I think this is just a fantastic image that the conquering happens because he let himself suffer and die, not because everyone else has to die. And and uh, that's, as you said, exactly the opposite of what you're kind of expecting in this kind of battle. Yeah, you're you're expecting uh, you're expecting something like Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. These big forces going against each other and just kind of all this battle happening. And the forces and John kind of slows things down. Jesus shows up and he's got his forces, and Satan shows up with his forces, and we just have this big build and drama. And then the very next verse, right? So in in verse eighteen, right, we're there, we're ready for this quote unquote battle of Armageddon. And then verse nineteen, right. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war. Okay, we're ready for it. We're ready for it. Very next verse. The beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast. And then that worshiped his image, these both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning brimstone. That's it. There is no battle of Armageddon. Yeah. Jesus shows up and dispenses judgment. That's that's all this is. There is no, there is no battle as we would kind of understand a battle. But I, yeah. I, I I love your point about Isaiah 63 uh, in chapter 19, because I think that really does key us in on to understand the book of Revelation. You really have to be an expert in the Old Testament, right? Yeah. which is which is no small feat, because John is counting on us understanding those kind of uh, taking the image of that divine warrior from Isaiah 63 and saying, OK, now I'm going to shift that a little bit to give you a depiction of Jesus that's going to play on those images of bloodstained clothing but it's going to be a little bit different than you might expect. And if you don't understand that background, you kind of miss what John's trying to do in that section. That's what makes this book so daunting is yeah. what it requires of us as readers. Yeah, it requires both that ability that you had to gain if you're studying Isaiah to see multiple meanings and just knowing what Isaiah talked about. Yeah. And I love, uh, I mean, to your point that you made earlier and just now with that there, there really isn't a battle. Verse 21, again, this is where you kind of think that there is a battle. The remnant, so he's yeah. thrown the beasts into the lake of fire, and the remnant are slain with a sword. But what's the sword? Oh, yeah, it's the one that proceeded out of his mouth. And so basically, again, it's uh, truth takes care yeah. of this, and uh, those who will follow truth are fine, and those who aren't, uh, I mean, it's a two-edged sword, right? But it just yeah. truth well, let me put it this way. It would seem to me, whether this is a, a real physical battle or not, that what is primarily being talked about, and, and I, I get this from John and Ezekiel, but mostly Nephi, that it's a, a spiritual battle. Um, and 
uh, error cannot exist where truth is, just like darkness can't exist where light is. And it seems to me that's what verse 20 was is saying. Well, when everyone saw the truth, that was the truth. Debate ended. Question over, right? This Okay, this is how it is. There's no point in uh, arguing about this anymore. Yeah, all of Satan's imagery and illusions, all the kind of spells he casts on us to think we understand things from a certain perspective. Jesus comes and dispels all that, and we say, "Oh, okay, now now I get it. Now I understand." Yeah, right? that's that's kind of the that's kind of the battle there. Same way we kind of talk about a war in heaven, right? Yeah. You yeah. kind of get that image of of battle, but it's more of a, a spiritual effort to to find understanding. Very good. So then with uh, with chapter 20, we get the only biblical discussion of a millennium, right? Kind of this thousand-year period where Satan is bound. Um, uh, then uh, for a thousand years, uh, then he's released in verse 7. Verse 8, we again go back to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 38 here with the kind of the battle of Gog and Magog, right? Where Satan is loose. And again, we have another battle or war of sorts. I'm yeah. not entirely sure how this one plays out at this point in the millennium either and especially when you throw in you know nephi says satan is loosed or bound by the righteousness of the saints yeah. uh but i don't picture like at the end of the millennium suddenly everyone becomes wicked i mean i i so it, I, i'm curious to see exactly what this last deal really means yeah me too that's that's one that uh yeah, that I wonder a fair amount about. My students will always want to talk about what is this? I thought the millennium was where things were good, their things yeah. were better, but now we're going to see somehow there's some kind of rupture, right, towards the end here. And, and, and that highlights one of the, the difficulties of the book of Revelation, I think, and it's uh, true of uh, Ezekiel's vision and Nephi's and Daniel's, that we want everything to be presented to us in this nice sequential order with certain amount of times that makes sense to us. And I'm not sure that the authors are really doing that. I think they're painting pictures uh, and and not as concerned with saying, okay, you get uh, point A for five and a half minutes, and then this leads to B, which is seven years. And to, uh, they're, they're painting pictures. So chronology is always difficult when you're dealing with these things. Yeah. And in fact, I would say my my cardinal rule number one is don't try to find a sense of chronology. Right yeah. When it says three and a half years, there's a lot of different things I'd take three and a half years to mean before I'd come to literally three and a half years. Yeah, I agree. Right. And so, agree. you know, we, I mean, we, we have these three kind of uh, scenes where you have seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. I mean, does are, are these three consecutive events? Are these three ways of talking about one thing? Yeah. I mean, these are big questions about the structure of the book of Revelation that we just don't have get answers for. And so if, if you know, if, if, if you're listening to somebody who tells you I've got the entire book of Revelation figured out and they show you a timeline based upon, you know, here's here's these years and these years and these years, uh, I, I start to get a little bit skeptical. Yeah, so do that's, I. That's, that's what John is trying to tell us is here's a timeline. I think it's here's a message for those of you who have ears to hear. Yeah. And, and again, it may even be, you know, all of the above is are these yeah. three events that happen in sequence or three descriptions of the same thing? Well, maybe both. Yeah. And and I'm with you. I and I don't want to get too specific because I don't want to really call anyone out. But I know there are a lot of even LDS things where people will go through and attach a specific timeline to this. And I I remember looking at one that a whole bunch of people asked me to look at. And man, the person had a lot of really convincing dates this way and this way and this way. And it was all based off of Christ being born in zero BC. And then you can get to this and this. And I'm like, oh, but 
Christ was probably born at four BC and now your whole timeline just fell apart. Right. I mean, anyway, I would just be really hesitant uh, about any of that. And the same for something like, I mean, 666, right? Back in the 1980s, it was Ronald Wilson Reagan, right? And then, because, you know, six letters in each name. But then as it got to the, the internet, it was WWW because that's the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And someone always wants to claim they've cracked the code on what 666 has to mean. Yeah. Right. And, and now, now you've got people who claim that if, if you, you know, take 666 and you multiply it by three and then add 666, you get, you know, 2016, which is when Donald Trump was made president. And yeah. now John was talking about the Trump administration. So again, you can kind of find what you want to find. Yeah, I've heard it. It it spells out uh, Caesar Nero and all sorts of stuff. And I mean, I don't, I don't know that we can really tell, and I don't know that he was trying to do any of that. But yeah, I completely agree. And so, chapter twenty-one is where we 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 finally get it. He promised us a wedding party, and we had to wait a thousand years before we got it. But we get there. Chapter twenty-one, verse one: I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So echoes of Genesis one-one, right? It's like we're starting things over again. Yeah, and uh, John first... likes to do that, by the yes. way. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, keep going. And the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And then this provocative phrase, there was no more sea. I'll come back to in a minute. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, so now we finally get the, the culmination of that, that wedding party back in chapter 19. But it's going to be... Uh, again take place in some fashion after the millennium okay when we kind of get to this this the celestialized earth kind of um that experience at least that's what john seems to be indicating here but i i love this phrase there was no more sea and again you could interpret this a few different ways but i i I like to look at something again isaiah or or job 41 uh where you kind of see that the sea as an image of chaos right in the ancient world and that when when john is talking when he says that there was no more sea the image that strikes me is saying that the savior has once and for all brought order out of chaos yeah. right and that's why the chaos monster has just been banished and nothing else is going to come out yeah. and so from what, and that's his way of saying kind of there is a permanent peace that is going to exist there was no more sea right you're, you're supposed to read that and say okay things have changed right we, we we've entered a different world a new creation where there's no more chaos there's no more sea we're supposed to find peace in uh in that and then again we, we see this with um with chapter six and seven i love these verses these are beautiful or verse six and seven it's verses six and seven of chapter 21 right because again chapters two and three it was all the promises to those that overcame right and so then we got a vision that told us how to overcome and what to overcome and so verse six, he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the waters of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Or she shall be my daughter. Right. This idea that if, if you've been able to understand the message at the heart of the book of Revelation, right, that's what makes you a child of God. It's that it's that understanding of what God represents and how to find him is kind of that that that, that's what gets you to that that stage of overcoming and inheriting all things. Very good. Very good. Uh, And that's uh, one of the things that I love is that uh, 
there are all sorts of crazy things going on throughout the book, but one of the constants, and as you said, sometimes takes a backseat, you don't see it much, but the, the idea of the Lamb of God or the sacrifice Lamb of God or the, the Lamb of God covered in blood, uh, his own blood and so on, that's kind of the constant that goes throughout uh, the entire book and that we get here at the end. Uh, verse 22, I saw no temple for the yep. Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it, right? And that's that's the point. Remember that the temple... Uh, the point of it is to help us to regain the presence of God. And so once we've regained God, and that is, I think, one of the themes of the book of Revelation, once we've gained God's presence to go no more out, as it were, to be pillars in the temple of God, right? then the, then we all are permanently in the temple, as it were, right? I mean, we're in God's presence, which was what the point of it, it's what the point of covenants, it's what the point of Christ, it's what everything was all about, to have become a higher being, uh, so that's what I like this new heaven and new earth. This isn't going back to Eden. This is better than Eden. Mm -hmm. um, and we're in a higher being that uh, has finally become what the plan was always about, the kind of being that can be with God forever. Yeah. And I, I love this image of, as he's talking about, you know, in verse 16, chapter 21, right? The city lies four square and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. You know, you have this kind of perfect cube that's 1,500 yeah. square miles, right? This idea that we're supposed to see, I think, the Holy of Holies, right, as it descends from yeah, heaven and rests on earth, which makes the earth the temple. Yes. Which is why there isn't a specific temple, because the earth itself, right, yeah. because the Father and the Son are there to dwell with us is the temple. Yeah, well, and especially the Holy of Holies, right, which is the place where God's presence is. And that's what the earth is, where God is and where we are. And that's what it's always been about. Yeah, absolutely. And well, so, I, uh, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, keep going. Oh, I was just going to take us to chapter 22 and just kind of um, bring back some of these, these images we saw earlier in the book, right? Chapter 22, verse 1, a pure river of water of life. Right, that proceedeth out of the throne, okay. Which again, kind of this Edenic imagery of the waters, the, the rivers that emerge from the garden. But now we see God's presence explicitly there in the midst yeah. of the street event. Verse two: On either side of the river was there the tree of life, okay, which bare twelve manners of fruit, yielded her fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were there for the healing of the nations. But again, that's kind of this idea that we're. It, it isn't. It isn't Genesis. It isn't this first creation. It isn't Eden. Is we're bringing in kind of this sense of what Eden could have been and what Eden was meant to become, right? right. This ultimate celestial paradise. They're using right. those same images, particularly again coming back to the tree of life, which again takes us back to Nephi's vision, chapter eleven of First Nephi. Yeah. Right, the uh, then uh, verse four, or it was verse three. There yeah. shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve them. They shall see His face. Right, this kind of personal relationship that now exists. We've overcome the the fall. Right? We've overcome the spiritual separation, the physical separation. They shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Right, kind of the, that sense of the perm. The relationship has now become permanent. Yes. Good, and, and uh, I I love this other little part here. It's not uh, this almost taking us away from this crescendo of uh, th what this is all about and the great triumph of being able to be with God again. But I think there's an important element here as well. 
I love that, you know, there's someone who's telling these things to John. Um, and we get verse seven where he says, behold, I come quickly, yeah. which makes it sound like it's Christ. Blessed mm-hmm. is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of the book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. And he saith unto me, see that thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, right? So John, he hears him say, I I come quickly. And he worships him like he's the Savior. And the angel says, hang on, hold on. I'm not, I'm not the Savior. I'm a servant. You're a servant. Let's not worship each other. We worship the, the, the Savior. And then we get again, like in verse 13, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, right? He keeps talking as if he's Christ, though he clearly is not. And I think this is a, a fantastic example of that principle of investiture of authority that we talk about, that we see the Savior, when, and that helps us understand, I think, uh, who the Father is, because we keep seeing the Savior act as if he is the Father, and he'll do everything the Father. That's one of the big themes John teaches us about in his gospel. Um, is that the Savior does everything that the Father does, says, thinks, feels, desires, whatever else. Uh, but we should keep in mind, he's representing the Father. The Father is the Father, and Christ, though he may speak as the Father at times, that's that's not who he is, just like this person may speak, this angel may speak as if he's Christ. Um, but that's because he's representing him. So that's a, a little bit tangential, but I think it helps us understand um uh how this is being presented to john so that we can have that in mind as we get to these kind of final verses where it's all wrapped together for us yeah i don't know if it's just coincidence or not but i mean that's the same thing you see in something like moses chapter one right another yes another vision you also see the same kind of investiture the same kind of blurring of identities of sorts right this is some kind of trope that exists in apocalyptic visions or something like that right yeah uh, I think just almost any time. I mean, the whole Old Testament, Jehovah speaks as if he's the father, um, because I think, that in, in my opinion, that's what, at least in the Old Testament, I'm not sure it means that in the New Testament or the Doctrine of Covenants, but in the Old Testament, the title Jehovah, I think, means Christ acting for and in behalf of the father. Yeah. Um, and and so I think it's everywhere in scriptures. But And you see this in something like DNC 29, right, where it seems like for half the revelation, it's Jesus speaking, and then all of a sudden we're listening to the Father speak. And it's not as if yeah. Jesus has left and Heavenly Father has shown up. We're just kind of switching perhaps roles. Yeah. So yeah. No, that's Very a nice good. observation. Uh, I, I want to say a, just a couple things in closing about chapter 22. Uh, verse 10, what the angel says to John, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, which again takes us back to something like Daniel, right, where kind of the, yeah. the injunction was to seal it. But intentionally, John is told not to. For the time is at hand. And that tells me that what the angel is telling us is this is relevant to us right now, right? This, there's a message in this book that we need to be able to pick up today. When, you know, whenever, whenever you're listening to this, whenever we're reading the scriptures, whenever you're teaching this and for gospel doctrine, there is a message here that is relevant. The time is at hand. This book matters to us in the present. And I think that's why you see something like verse 18. John ends with this warning. Right, that I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And again, a lot of us are missionaries. Remember hearing this on our mission that this is kind of uh, evangelical strategy 101. If a missionary shows up, show him this passage because you can't have additional scripture because John says you can't have additional scripture in Revelation 22. But he's talking specifically about this book. Yeah. Right. The words of the book of Revelation are in, are relevant and important enough that you don't mess with them. People need to be able to experience them and read them in their proper context because the message there 
is that significant. That's very good. And, and I mean, this is just my opinion and probably should be thrown out, but I think that uh, often some of the most important books are written in ways that are just slightly hard to understand because that just makes it so that people are less like, if it's really clear and someone disagrees with it, at some point they edit it out. But yeah. if you can just twist it to mean what you want or whatever, uh, then they don't. So I, I think that the symbolism actually helps this book to be preserved without being changed. That's, that's, I'm that's sure nice there point. were still changes, but. Yeah. Well, Joseph Smith did say the book of Revelation is the plainest book God ever caused to be written. <laughs> right. So I, to me, that's Joseph calling us out as readers saying, hey, if this book doesn't make sense to you, read it again. Work yeah. harder. Dig deeper. Right. Get to the point and, where you read it and say, yeah, actually, Jesus wins. Right. Yeah. That does make sense. And I, I, again, I think that's uh, th there may be some elements that we can't. OK, what is the. What is this plague where a third of men die? And so on? what yeah. does that mean? There may be some elements we don't understand, but the, the real meaning of it is pretty easy to understand. Let God prevail in your life and things will go well for you when Jesus wins. And if not, then they won't because Jesus will win, as you said. So yeah. he knows what he's doing. The Lord knows what he's doing. It's our job just to, to identify where he's at and what's expected of us and then hang on as tight as we can. Yeah. Yeah. Despite all of the deceptive things that are around us that that seem so convincing but uh this book lets us know they're not convincing and they're temporary yeah. uh stick with christ absolutely and, and his representatives yeah. for them that overcome will inherit all things yeah. it's a beautiful message it is a beautiful message well thank you nick i appreciate that that's just good clean fun so thank you i, I appreciate you having me on like i said i I, uh, I I never turned out an opportunity to talk about the book of Revelation. It's one of my favorite texts. <laughs> well, you felt it. I mean, it almost seems too simple when uh, you you listen to Nick. You're, but it's uh, what he says. I, th I think he just has a great way of boiling it down so we can say, oh, yeah, that is it. So uh, this is a fantastic way to end not only the book of Revelation, but uh, the New Testament year uh, to just say, yeah, uh, there may be some complexities uh, along the way, but stick with christ he's gonna win amen can't say it better yeah well thank you nick and thanks to our audience hopefully this has been helpful for you and uh maybe you know someone who has questions about the book of revelation or is struggling in some way or something and uh, you'll share this with them uh and uh, we encourage you to to get into the scriptures and read these things and i believe the spirit will testify to you and teach you uh even more profoundly as you do that so uh thanks and have a great day